Welcome back to Humans of Grad School, the podcast about humans who happen to go to grad school. Being a grad student can often become a large part of our identity, but it's not the only part. This podcast aims to share the stories of the humans behind the research. everyone welcome back to the pod thank you so much for being so understanding during my little hiatus um it's been very very busy writing my thesis but i'm very excited i have essentially two semi-solid drafts of two of my chapters done so for any of those of you writing a thesis right now i am writing a monograph so essentially one big book with big chapters involved and i've got probably yeah two chapters done and that probably equates to about 120 to 130 pages of writing which is (laughs) wild to say the least so naturally I'm exhausted and if I'm not making any sense it's probably because I've been reading and thinking too hard also I just realized I have my window open and geese are flying by my window as I'm saying this so if you happen to hear goose noises that would be why um just another sign that spring is upon us getting ready to at some point get attacked by a goose that's nesting can't wait but um i digress we are back with a new episode i'm so excited to bring this episode to you this episode covers a lot and i'm just really excited for everyone to hear it it's a culmination of some really great stories and some really great insights about grad school, being in grad school, leaving grad school, potentially going back to grad school, knowing who you are as an individual, both inside and outside of grad school. Ugh, just, I think it's going to be a really great episode. I'm excited for all of you to listen to it. So I'm not going to spend too much time rambling today because I think I just want to get, oh my God, the geese. Okay, sorry, sorry. Um, <laughs> oh God, I'm just gonna keep this all in. Um, yeah, I'm just, I just want to get to the to the meat and potatoes of this podcast episode. So I'm not gonna say very much else. I hope you enjoy, and hopefully by the time I bring you a next episode, a goose hasn't tried to bite me or something. So keep your fingers crossed for me. Today's guest is Janelle, rejection embracer, multifaceted meanderer, dedicated mentor. Let's hear her story. Okay, so if I talk about my background, I feel like I have to go back to like my parents. So my parents were born and raised in Guyana went to university here in Canada together, like went to Ryerson and then had myself and my two brothers here. And so I lived here until I was eight in this Indo-Caribbean family because my parents are Guyanese, right? And then we moved to Guyana uh, when I was eight and I was there for 10 years. And so it's an interesting place to be because you're a racial majority when you're there as like an Indian or black person. And so a lot of the people that you see in power and more elite positions are business people, doctors, lawyers, that kind of thing. And that's basically 
where the whole, you know, that Brown stereotype comes out where it's like, they expect you to be doctor, lawyer, engineer. Um, I don't know where the doctor thing came from, but it was where my brain went to when I was younger. And I think part of it is because I liked aspects of psychiatry and I thought maybe that's something I might do. And I also have alopecia. Um, so I thought about dermatology and thought maybe something like that. And so I also knew that it made my parents happy when I said the doctor thing, even though I didn't really think too hard about it. And then, so I did O levels and A levels, which are a British level exam. And that gave me some transfer credits as well when I was applying to university. And so I went to U of T Scarborough and I got in as like a psych specialist and I ended up doing a double major in biology and psychology because I figured I'll get the prerequisites. I'll do psych. I enjoy psych. And as soon as I get there, it's kind of like there's a bunch of people who've just known what they wanted to do their whole lives. And they knew that the doctor aspect of it required volunteering and having the perfect grades and knowing what you're doing from day one and being involved in all these things. And I was like, I don't have perfect grades from high school and doing my exams. Um, I was definitely an ABC student. I was not an all A student later in high school. And part of it was because I was working for my parents from a very young age and that took up a lot of my time as well. And so like the little bit of downtime I've had, I used to take it. And so I think it just made me genuinely tired. And so going to university was almost a bit of a vacation for me because I was working significantly less <laughs> in comparison. So when I got there, I realized I like having this well-rounded life where I have time for myself. I was the, on, I joined the Caribbean Connections Club on campus with my friend who also moved from Guyana with me. So we actually went to university together, which was really nice because we were really close. And um, I ended up becoming their marketing director for a couple of years. And so being involved in things like that, volunteering, taking various courses, because I really like shopped around with courses. I did environmental science, I did public policy, public health. Um, I knew I loved psychology. I was good at psychology. And then the bio courses I did because I needed it to finish the major. Um, not as good in them, but I did enjoy things related to physiology and stuff like that. And so once I got towards the end, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I figured out in the first year that I definitely didn't want to be a doctor. And I told my parents this and they were very upset because they thought maybe I thought it was too hard and I was giving up on myself and it was something I truly wanted. But really, I don't really find an affinity with this. And so I was trying to figure it out over time. And then near the end, I was um, volunteering with Toronto Grace Health Center and I got to help out in physio and um, talk to patients and really get that one-on-one -on -one experience where they were really happy to have someone to tell their lived experience to. And so that meant a lot to me, like just being able to make a difference with them. And then I was also at the same time doing a final year research project in psychology. And that was cognition related, very different. But in that, I was able to recruit undergrads for that particular project because I had to, you know, run like a little test on them. It was basically relating culture to semantics. And so I had them like associating words and seeing how it differed depending on their culture. And so I got to talk to a lot of undergrads and they'd linger around afterwards and ask me so many questions about being an older student. And so that aspect of mentorship really struck me. And the fact that research lets you connect with people and help people in a certain way. And so I was like, what can I do that combines research and helping people at a clinical level because I wanted to improve healthcare as well, especially for older adults. And so first I thought about biomedical engineering and I did not get in. And partially because they wanted an A minus of that particular 
uh, program that I applied for. And that was, again, I wasn't the perfect grades person. <laughs> and then when I was like, I didn't get in, but I was still talking to people from the lab I was considering. They said, have you heard about rehab science? And so I was like, oh, this sounds more, more up my alley because rehab science is more um, non-physics related because I was not good at physics and things like that. I ended up doing extra courses after I finished my bachelor's that included public health, um, physics, calculus, programming, and sports management. And the things that really changed my life in those extra courses were public health, where I learned about the social determinants of health and really understood the socioeconomic aspects of health. And then also taking sports management, which was so out of my realm what I thought, but what really was, it was a, almost like a public health course in its own way, combined with economics and equity issues and stuff like that. Because the way the director, it was taught by the director of athletics at U of T Scarborough. And the way he taught it was to teach us case studies and to have us probe, like, why do they charge so much for tickets? And why are they financing these students for their sports experiences at colleges, but not their educational experience? And why does the funding go this way? And talking about trans rights at the Olympic level and stuff like that. We had some amazing lectures and so he he was also someone who would always come to us at the start he'd be like I have these job opportunities I have these volunteer opportunities if you ever need a reference come to my door and so I went to see him and I was telling him how I didn't get into grad school the first time I felt like a failure and I had all these different thoughts as well and he was one of the first people who really told me there are no there are no failures it's really you just didn't get this opportunity and you keep going and also to recognize where my successes were. And he was very supportive in, in writing a reference for me for my master's. And so I always think about him as someone who I really look up to as a mentor because he was someone who jumped to different projects. He wasn't really tied to like one place. He did what interested him and where he could make a difference. So while he was at U of T, he was helping develop their Pan Am gym. And then once he finished that program, he moved on to a different university to do something else. And so I thought that was really cool, like this aspect of jumping around and kind of helping where you are. And it's funny because now my career is kind of like that. So anyways, I ended up at McMaster uh, doing my master's there. And I did in rehab science and the focus was brain injury. And I ended up like I never thought I'd do a qualitative study, but it worked. I thought I was going in to do some stroke related work because I thought, OK, the person I'm working with is focused on stroke and like various interventions and so I thought that's where my work would be and then when we get there um her other students doing this quantitative study about brain injury and motivation for rehab and she's like she has this idea for this qualitative study but she doesn't have time to do it in her master's so I think you should do it in yours and so we'd have that kind of sister project and so I me being naive and not knowing that I could have more choice in what I do um went along with it I would say at first. And then I really fell in love with it because I do really love qualitative. And um, I really learned a lot in that few years that I was there. And I, what I really loved again was talking to the participants because some of them told me, you know, talking about their experience in rehab was cathartic for them. It helped them. It helped them really understand and reflect on how they changed and advanced in their role. And so while my master's experience wasn't the greatest experience, I would say, because I had some interpersonal difficulties, uh, I definitely learned a lot and also got a lot more confidence in myself after having to go through it. And I started doing therapy in that time too. And I thought that was, you know, like a life changer for me starting therapy. And so after I finished my master's, 
I had sort of had this brief start with my PhD, but because my master's wasn't done, I ended up dropping out of the PhD. And so due to certain reasons and how it affected my self-confidence, I decided not to rush back to the PhD and I applied for jobs. And so right out, like near the end of my master's, I had a job with um, Toronto Rehab as a research analyst. And that was just a contract job, but it gave me really good experience with a different team who valued my work. And then out of the blue, well, I'm just applying to things. I'm working a retail job, talking to my coworkers, like, oh, I got another interview here and there and getting no's or not hearing back about applications. I get contacted on Indeed of all places um, where I'd posted my resume and the uh, recruiter for a cannabis startup messages me and says, oh, I have the job position that might interest you. It's a research analyst position. Um, Can we have a call? And so when we finally do have the call, because she kind of missed the first one and she said, um, okay, uh, there's this company, it's a legit company. That's how she worded it. It's a legit company. (laughs) And um, you should, you know, you should interview her. I think you'd be a good fit. And so I looked them up and the person who was going to be my boss essentially had nine years of experience with uh, the university health network here in Toronto. And so I said, well, even I don't know anything about cannabis, never smoked it at the time. Um, wouldn't know what I'm doing in the private sector, but Hey, you know, if they think I can interview, I'll interview. And she seems like a great connection to have. And so I went into that interview and I was very prepared and, um, I like I went in with a diagram of what they wanted me to do in that role and uh, had a whole plan and everything. And so I was hired and it was maybe nine months of a very fun time, I would say, being in the private sector. And it really, again, helped grow my self-confidence because the minute I got there, they treated me like a colleague. They treated me with a level of expertise that they recognized in me. And so it was never like I had to prove myself. And so that was a distinct difference between grad school and working is that I felt like in grad school, you're constantly proving yourself and you're constantly like, even if your writing is good this time, next time it might not be. And so, or even if your, your thought process is good this time, next time it might be wrong. And so I felt like grad school was a lot more of me constantly comparing myself to others and constantly feeling like I was being evaluated. Well, when I went to this job, it was accepted that I had these skills and let's just get to work. And so that experience, I think, was so great for me, even though the company didn't do that well. And um, they ended up going under, unfortunately, because cannabis is such a dicey field. Um, But I learned a lot in that field and I got to like be on project proposals and create medical brochures for doctors and patients and answer questions and sit in these like meetings with um, physician advisory boards and go to conferences. Like I was paid to go to conferences, which was really cool. Um, and so I really love that job. And they, I made great connections too, because my boss who was there ended up getting me references and connecting me with the next company that she went to. So I ended up getting a freelance contract with them as a medical writer, which I still have, but since COVID, they haven't really been active. And then I applied for my current job with Meredith, uh, which is for, I guess I say Meredith on this podcast, but it's for McMaster. And the funny thing about this job is that I have a little belief in the law of attraction. And so I was kind of like looking, not looking for signs of the universe, but like if I prepare myself for things I want and really believe that they're going to happen, I'm already like motivated to keep looking for jobs. It helps me with like how I write my cover letters because I feel really passionate that I'm going to get certain positions that I think are for me. 
And so I randomly checked my Twitter direct messages one day. And there's a, a message from a colleague from McMaster who says, Janelle, this job posting looks like it might be for you. And it's for research that is qualitative and focused on cannabis. And, and it was like a day before this application is due. And I was like, well, this is definitely something I should be applying for. And at the same time, U of T invited me to speak at the same PhD program that I dropped out of, invited me to come speak about my experiences with cannabis research and how it reflects into rehab and health science. And so I said, the universe is kind of telling me to go this way. And even though the talk didn't pan out because of the pandemic, uh, next week is kind of marks the year when I interviewed. And so I'm coming up on my first year in this three-year position. And I guess I could not be happier. Like, it's really great. So yeah, that's, I definitely didn't, I feel like I've I've veered away from your whole question. Yeah. What I'm definitely not what I wanted to be when I, when I was younger, essentially definitely did not become a doctor. (laughs) Okay. Oh my God. You, you just gave me like your entire story and I've written down, I've written down like a page (laughs) and a half of probes. (laughs) She asked me one question. I told her everything. Everything. Okay. That's okay. We're going to go through it piece by piece now. Mm -hmm. Um, the first thing that I actually wanted to talk to you about was something that you mentioned like way at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And that was the fact that you lived in Canada until you're eight and then moved and then came back. And I Mm -hmm. was wondering if you wanted to talk about that experience and what it was like for you to be moving from Canada to Guyana back to Canada and how it all went, how you felt about it and how it might've changed things for you. I have a lot of pros and cons for that experience because part of it was I, I have alopecia universalis. It's like, this isn't a video, but people who know me on social media, like I'm completely hairless and I've been this way since I was 10 and, but I was born with alopecia and I had like a full head of hair and just patches and whatever. And so when we moved, alopecia is very induced by stress and so that's when my hair really fell out so like I lost all my hair by the time I was 10 because of that move because it was such a life change for me to go from this developed country with where I have this specific accent to go to a completely different country where they speak English but they're not quite speaking English the way I know it they're speaking in this slang this dialect that I don't know um, they have a different attitude toward teaching. I'm wearing a uniform that I never had to wear before. Um, and my mom is coming to visit me at lunch and sit with me. Cause I like the first couple of days I was crying. So I was an eight year old, not knowing where the hell I was essentially. And so at first I didn't quite like that culture shock, but as I grew, grew up there and now that I look back on it, I really appreciate what I was exposed to because I had a great education. My mom was very much the, the fact that it was a private education was really helpful because my mom really cares and my parents really care in general about like our, our quality of education. So she could come in and say, well, I don't approve of, of how this teacher is approaching it or they're not doing enough work. Um, and she's not getting the grades that like she could achieve. So what can we do better? And like, so she really was able to come into the school when she needed to for me and my brothers and really like, um, you know, give a shit essentially, which was nice. Uh, and I value that now. Back then I was like, why are you causing so much trouble? <laughs> <laughs> Mom, this and is now, so embarrassing. I'm so, you're always here. <laughs> uh, but no, it was great. And part of the moving is because we, my dad was constantly traveling to Guyana because he invested in, in starting businesses there. And so now we were having dinner together every night and he was traveling less. Like I still go to Florida um, every so often and go to Canada every so often, but it was much less than before. 
And I mean, it's a tropical country. Not having winter is ideal sometimes. And I had a ton of family there. So I had cousins to be around all the time. So there were a lot of pluses. And I also love the fact that I was in these private schools where so many diplomats kids went. So I got exposed to so many more cultures than I might've been if I was here. Because uh, I was born in Brampton and at the time it was still quite white. And so there was still quite a level of racism uh, within classes and stuff like that. And so being there, I don't think I got the, like, you know, I wasn't exposed as much to racism. And so currently I do a lot of equity and diversity work. And so feeling like a majority there when I moved back here, I didn't define myself as brown as like a lot of people do. I didn't have that same experiences of racism that a lot of people do. And I think that gave me a lot more emotional strength to support other people. And so that's been different. That's been interesting kind of comparing those experiences because I really only experienced racism when I came back to Canada. Um, And it wasn't even directed at me because um, it was like around me, which was very strange too. like people casually making jokes about other races. And I'm like, I'm not white like you guys. (laughs) So it's been very, very eye opening to see the way people casually talk about it. Um, And the way racism differs in the Caribbean, I think, to North America is because in the Caribbean, there were settlers who colonized these countries. And then they brought in slaves or black slaves, and then they brought in tons of indentured laborers. So my mom is part Portuguese, and um, my dad's like more fully Indian. So there were Indian indentured laborers, Portuguese, Chinese. And so coming here is so different because the people who were the masters still live in the country with the same people who were slaves and indentured laborers. While in Guyana, most of those white people left. And so the people in power are all people of color. And so it's a very, it's more of a caste base, like a, like a income level based level of racism sometimes, but it's very different from here. So it's an interesting perspective. Um, so yeah, I think there were a lot of positives living there. Um, I think I wish I have, I didn't have as much work to do after hours were generally either you're doing schoolwork or helping out with a business. And I didn't have a lot of time for extracurriculars. And so when I came here, people were like, you've never been camping. You've never done snowboarding or skiing. And I'm like, it's also kind of an elitist perspective. But at the same time, no, I never had time to do any of those things. I lived in South, like I, I traveled quite a bit with my family, but like I've never been anywhere in South America aside from Guyana. Because a lot of people don't know like while well, Guyana's Caribbean, it sits in South America and is the only English speaking country there. But it's still considered a Caribbean country. And so... Yeah, I think I was, I got a lot of interesting exposure because I'm, I'm quite mature by the time I got to university compared to other people having had to manage employees and do payroll and staff rosters and help with taxes. But at the same time, I didn't have the fun experiences. And so that was a, a, a bit of a, a change for me. Mm, definitely. And you brought that up earlier too, saying that your experience in undergrad was kind of like a vacation. Yeah. <laughs> I was wondering if you wanted to talk about that a little bit more and tell me about what that was like for you. It was so interesting to me to just wake up, go to class, have time with friends and not have somebody saying like, you should be home doing this. <laughs> I definitely, my, my parents just like have always been strict and I respect where it came from. Um, I feel like they've raised very disciplined children, if I comment on myself and my brothers, very responsible children. But at the same time, they were, I don't know if they just didn't want us exposed to things that they thought might get us in trouble. So I didn't drink a lot and I've never been much of a drinker. Um, but this is when I really got to go to parties and go more to clubs. And 
Yeah, I definitely, the workload to me didn't feel that bad because when you do um, AS and AL levels, which are those British exams I talked about, they're at a university level. So that's why you get transfer credits from them. And so I didn't really feel like a lot of the work in my first couple of years was that hard. And so, I mean, like I wasn't good at calculus, but like that's particularly because I hate practicing math. <laughs> and I kind of wish I, one regret I have for university is not doing things I was good at as opposed to doing things I thought I had to do. Because if I continued doing a psych specialist, I don't know if you have to do calculus if you're a psych specialist, you probably do. Um, I wouldn't have wasted time doing chemistry and biochemistry and all those things that I'm not good at, but I didn't love at the same time. Because when I love something, I'm really good at it. So I was always good at psychology. Um, so I wish, I kind of wish I'd played to my strengths and not really wasted time in things that I didn't enjoy because I thought I had to do them. It's really frustrating when you feel as though you almost have to play the game to <laughs> move forward. I remember feeling the same way in undergrad. I also went in being like, oh yeah, I'm going to go to medical school. Like so casual yeah. as if like it's easy. But then, you know, I remember sitting in courses like organic chemistry where I did horribly. I'm talking low C's, maybe some early D's, you know, <laughs> right? And it was just like, I don't understand I don't love these things, but I feel like I'm supposed to be doing these things and these are the mm -hmm. right things to move forward. And it's just frustrated thinking about playing the game. Yeah. I remember um, I signed up for biochemistry thinking I should take it after like nearly failing organic chem and then bringing it back around and passing the a final with an A. I kicked ass at the end, but because I forced myself to like get it right. Uh, but I didn't enjoy it. And then I decided to go do biochem. Lord knows why. I walk the first class I go into, I think I spent 20 minutes in this class. And I said, no, this, I can't do this. And I dropped it immediately and did something else I enjoyed. But I wish I never bought the textbook. <laughs> <laughs> you bought the textbook for so one day class? <laughs> <gasps> Janelle. <laughs> I know. I think I managed to sell it somebody, to somebody and I took the plastic off. I did so many mistakes. <laughs> Oh my God. And that was for 20 minutes of class. 20 minutes of class. Uh, textbooks are the biggest scam of university. Seriously. <laughs> 100%. That is so funny. Oh my God. Okay. Um, I also want to talk about, you know, you mentioned that you had a Caribbean connection coming back to you. You moved back with one of your friends. One of, actually my best friend. From your best friend. That's mm -hmm. amazing. Do you want to talk yeah. about that a little bit more? What that experience was like? That was incredible because we became friends in the last couple of years of high school when she transferred and um, we were just inseparable. Uh, we'd talk every night. We, we made plans all the time and talked about going to university together um, she actually got into like we both got into multiple universities and we ended up going I don't think we went to the same one because we wanted to be together but I think it was like it just worked out for both of us and um, it was really great to not feel alone moving back to a country where I hadn't lived for so long and while my brother was already here going to Ryerson he's at a different university and so I can't like tag along with him and his friends at a completely different area of Toronto and so she lived on campus and so being able to go to her house there on campus because they live in like a townhouse style and hang out with her roommates there it's such a it feels like a high school a lot with Scarborough because it's not in the downtown core so the campus is like on one piece of land 
And so you see the same people all the time and orientation, you make a lot of friends. And so it felt like I was kind of back in high school in some ways, especially because my high school best friend was there. Um, but I really think it made the transition a lot easier. Uh, it was, and we could like laugh at things together that we thought were strange. Uh, and the funny thing was though, is that this is where I really learned that friends do grow apart as we did different subjects and we were around different people and she moved off campus and was living with other people. We spent less time together. And so while we're still close now, um, we don't talk as much as we used to. We wouldn't call each other our best friends, like our only best friends, like we used to, we definitely grew up, but we haven't lost that connection. So if I call her right now, we'll like catch up in 10 minutes. But it was just like, a, I definitely had a level of sadness as we got older and I was like, okay, we're growing apart. But it wasn't the end of the world, I realized later on. Um, and she ended up going to, um, where'd she go? She went to Waterloo and started her master's and then transferred in to do her PhD because she did it in pharmacology and she had to take bench work. So like year, six years to do her PhD. Um, and now she just finished recently. But it was just really nice, again, to have that connection. And another thing is that my older brother ended up dating and then get engaged to and is married to our other best friend for the last two years of high school. So she lives here now. So a lot of my friends from Guyana, like I'm still quite close with the ones who are really, I was really close with, I'm still close with, which I really appreciate. So I have friends in Florida, in England, here in Canada, like all over the place and some still in Guyana. And so I think that's also nice having people with different perspectives and not just people who are directly in my sphere of influence um because I always feel like I always want to learn more being rejected from um one grad program and talking to that particular professor was an eye-opener for me in the terms of there's not one path to get to where you want to go and one rejection does not mean that there's nowhere else to go and so I always value talking to people because I learned about roles and jobs and fields of research that I never even considered existed because I went to a conference once and someone was like, have you considered being a recreational therapist? Because you seem like you might be into that. And I was like, oh, something to think about. So like, I always like to go and get nuggets from different people. And I think that's like where, how my friendships have evolved as well. Oh, definitely. Mm-hmm. What's so funny is there, so there's a couple nuggets that you mentioned there. Nuggets, <laughs> <laughs> Just a couple nuggets that I had also written down as probes. And so we can go one of two ways. One was talking about that specific professor that mm. you had sat down with and had that conversation with. And the other little nugget was, you know, probes about facing rejection from different grad mm. programs and what that experience was like. So I don't know if you kind of want to narrate that into one big <laughs> story or what kind of happens, but I'll let you choose your own adventure here and then we can go there. <laughs> uh, well, I'll talk a bit about rejection because like, it's such an interesting concept to think about rejection when it comes to grad school, because there's so many, again, there's so many programs and people you could work with that one door closing really means nothing in the long run of it. When I look back that I wonder why I made such a big deal about it back in the day, especially when I didn't really know what kind of research I wanted to do to start out with. Um, I know I wanted to do something healthcare related and work with older adults ideally. Um, but I really didn't need to give it as much stress as I did back then. Um, So when I applied, I was like, of course, doing the emailing of professors and you agonize over those emails and you want to sound passionate, but you're also 
they know you're emailing multiple other people. And so there were some people who'd be like, I actually don't quite fit into your, your sphere of your interest. So I might not be a good fit for you. So I really appreciated the people who actually responded about why they responded. Um, and then I also, you know, I was talking to somebody who was considering me and you and I've had this discussion before and was like really thinking about me being in their lab. And then in the last minute was like, oh, actually my lab's too big. And I'm like, it's a good thing there are other options out there. Um, although when I picked my master's supervisor, I kind of wish I had shopped around a little bit more. And I think that's something I mentor undergrads with a lot. When I do my mentorship now, I, I say, you know, like you don't have to go with the first person who wants to work with you because this is a, an interact, like um, a transactional relationship. And it's not about what they can, what you do for them. It's about what they can do for you because ultimately they already have their position and they're not going anywhere, but you have the chance to define your career the way you want to. And like, if you want to be with somebody who's going to give you opportunities to teach opportunities to publish, you got to know what you're looking for. And if you need, you want a hands-off approach, then you got to know what you're looking for. And you have to ask that. And so I wish I had known back in the day that I could be more directive of what I wanted. And it wasn't about who will have me. Cause I think that's the big mistake we make when we're younger. We think it's about other people accepting us when it's really like, do we accept the situation that we're in? So I think rejection for me has turned into like, I don't fear it anymore because now I put for the way I perceive rejection is if I put my very best into something and I'm very positive and put all the effort I could in for something and I don't get it, then it's not for me. And I have no regrets. Um, if I knew I half asked something, then maybe, yeah, I'll be mad about it. But now it, it doesn't like, especially applying for jobs and experiencing that whole unemployment thing being laid off. Um, you can't really, you know, be annoyed at it as much because like, it's the reality of the job world. Like there's so many people like you doing the same things and trying to find work at the same time. Um, so yeah, that's, that was my experience with rejection. And I also am not mad about the programs that I didn't get into. Well, I only applied to one program. Like it wasn't even like I had varied by application. I applied to one single program, um, and didn't get in. Uh, so it wasn't even like I had that much rejection, but at the same time, it felt like this huge loss. <laughs> so it was, it's so interesting, like how perspective changes over time. And then when I was shopping around for my PhD, I ended up having a laundry list of things I wanted in a supervisor. And so by the time I was done, I had my pick of four people when I was applying because that's the strategy I took. I'm like, here's what I need. What do you have? Versus the, uh, oh, will you take me on? And so it was such a, diff a distinct difference. Um, and then that professor, I do miss learning from him because he left so quickly and then has kind of fallen out of talking so much in like the spirits you don't really see him he doesn't really publish or anything like he's more focused on sports um but I don't know if he just wanted to teach sports management or if it was a requirement for his position but it was just I feel like I got really lucky because I think he left the year after I was done and so I got really lucky to encounter him and sit in that class and like just really learn in a way that wasn't just like here's a textbook and read here are some case studies um you know what do you think and why do you think it plays out that way in the sports field and why is this important, et cetera. And it was really helpful from like my critical and analytical skills and to be able to have somebody who is a mentor who says, here are some opportunities. My door is open as opposed to waiting for you to ask 
really has shaped how I am a mentor myself. Cause recently, um, one of the undergrads who like I interact with and I supervise through my job, um, was asking me questions and we had a one-on-one and I, and I said, she's so eager and she has all this energy and she wants advice. And so I just messaged her and I said, send me your number. I'm your mentor now. And so now we have conversations every day or every other day. And we, we talk about like how to send an email, like the fact that like everyone's nervous, whenever they send an academic email and we all check it a million times and just to make people feel less alone and to give them opportunities as they come across my desk is, you know, really valuable for me. So I think my mentors have really shaped me into the mentor I am. So that interaction with him definitely changed my life now that I think about it. Casual. <laughs> yeah, like, casual casual realization. Monica. <laughs> Look what you did, Monica. You gave me an epiphany. <laughs> and for, yeah. And people who are listening right now, you can't see it, but my eyeballs just bulged out of my head yeah. as well as she said that, because obviously that's a very casual realization to come to, you know, just that this person was life-changing and big way for you. No big deal. (laughs) Um, but with that, once again, you kind of hit on my next probe and that was, (laughs) this is what happens when qualitative researchers just talk to each other. (laughs) We've got this perfect rhythm down. Oh my God. And my probe here, I will show it to you on the camera. People listening, you can't see, but literally I wrote being a mentor with like (laughs) extra asterisks because I want to talk about it. Yeah. So let's talk about mentorship a little bit then. You know, you've talked about how you're shaped by some of the mentors that have Mm -hmm. come into your life. And now you're in a position to mentor other people. And I was wondering if we could maybe just discuss mentorship in general. What have you learned from your mentors? What have you learned about mentorship? What are you hoping to be when it comes to mentoring other people? Mm -hmm. And so I think, again, I think there's so much value in having discourse. And I talk about that again, when I think about diversity and equity, like the solution to a lot of things is discourse. Because the only way you're going to learn about other perspectives in life is talking to other people. And so talking to the professor who supervised me for my undergrad research project was a life changer for me in some ways, because, you know, he talked to, he believed in my work and was like, if I was willing to, would I could come back and redo the project and publish it with him. Like he was somebody who was like very positive about ideas I had. And so some people who value your input, um, really make a difference in making you feel validated because at the end of the day, we all want to be validated, especially academia is so much about validation so much because like you have to publish and be approved by, you have to get approved by the authors who help you write it or your committee. And then you have to get approval from these three strangers plus an editor. And so, so much of like the world and the the world we live in right now is about getting validated for the type of work we've done. And so I think a lot of things in life are unwritten rules, especially when it comes to academia. And so another aspect of being a mentor has been my own personal experiences and navigating the people who weren't good mentors to me. Um, and what I didn't want in a mentor as much as I learned from the people who were great mentors. And so I knew I wanted somebody who could be personable with me, um, who could be down to earth, somebody who would communicate well and answer me when I needed it, but also be, you know, straight up if they can't be available and punctual like I'm extremely punctual to everything because I've experienced tardiness and to me it doesn't reflect well professionally so there's a lot of little nuggets I've picked up along the way and what to look for when you apply for a supervisor because the most you find on the internet is 
look for somebody who has a common interest with you. Here's a form template email you could send. There's none of the, this isn't a transactional relationship. There's no, you should be asking for things you want, especially at the master's level, because I think people view a master's as this easy step to a PhD and view the PhD as much harder, which I do agree a PhD is quite hard, but a master's still has its challenges. And I don't think people acknowledge that enough um, that a master's can be challenging on its own, especially if like, you know, you have a supervisor who might not be as experienced or might not be. I don't think just because you're a professor means you, you will be a good supervisor because the minute you're in that relationship, you're thrown into this very intimate relationship as much as people don't recognize it while it's professional, it's still very intimate because this person is basically charged with guiding you through your education. And so I feel like at the master's level, that's when you should be really selective. And then when you have that experience, you can again be selective at your PhD, but I still think your master's is important. And I come back to it again because a lot of people are like, oh, you just finished it. And then the, math, the PhD is where you can really narrow your focus. So I'm like, but I really enjoyed the research I did at my master's level. To me, it's important. And it's what, it, it's what helps me apply for jobs. And it helps me apply to be in the PhD program. So why isn't that important right now? So there's definitely things I might have done differently if I had that experience that I have now, of course, as we all know. So I try to prevent people from making those mistakes that are preventable. I mean, we all have bad relationships or, you know, pick the wrong person now and then, but at least if I can share that experience, maybe I've made a difference in the world. And really I realized, and I go back to like what I want to be when I grow up, I realized I wanted to do work that helps people in some way, be it in healthcare or mentorship. And I feel like I really enjoy supervising and my current job lets me supervise a handful of undergrads in various working positions. And they ask me a lot of questions and I kind of feel them for my boss, um, which she's grateful for because she doesn't get the five, the 5 a.m. emails sometimes that I get. Um, but I really had a passion for mentorship. And like I felt like my cousin, like I like picked up my cousins who are younger than me and said, how are you doing? How's it going with university stuff? And checked in on them and tried to like give that guidance. And so I know they've, you know, they've been grateful for it. And so I still want to do that for other undergrads. So if I'm I always tell them like my, my, my proverbial door, cause I'm not in person right now, my proverbial door is open to them. Definitely. Okay. Once again, you know, another nugget that we're hitting on, um, the probe right above that I had asterisked a million times <laughs> <laughs> other than being a mentor was the EDI work that mm -hmm. you do, mm -hmm. um, you know, in this conversation about making a difference and mentoring other people and engaging in discourse with everyone, do you want to talk a little bit more about what kind of equity, diversity, inclusion work that you're currently doing or involved in? Absolutely. Um, I, it's, it's one of those things where I just stumble into things because they strike me and they, I feel passionate and I'm moved by, by things that happen. And I don't want to be like, oh, I only care about this because of recent events. But I did, and I mean, I, I've always been a feminist and I've always been a person about equity because I tend to pass sometimes, like I'm fairer skinned. People don't quite pin down my nationality sometimes. Um, but I've seen other people, you know, get discriminated against, get overlooked for how they look for their name um, and heard about it. And so when the George Floyd was murdered and everything, I, I realized how 
how much this was affecting my work. And I really appreciated having a boss who was, because our group is so diverse, like all the, the two undergrads who work directly in my team are also people of color. And um, having a boss who's an ally was so important because she gave us space to, in all of our meetings to talk about this right now, how we're feeling. If I needed a little bit of a mental health break, like I could be honest about that. And I thought about how many people don't have the level of support that I have. And also it made me scrutinize the way the current department I work in was, you know, executing communications, whether they were talking about it or ignoring the issue or how were they rewarding it. And I was like, I'm not okay. Like I don't accept the bare minimum that they're doing. And so they put out a call for equity and diversity to create this anti-racism group. Um, I think this was, when did this happen? It had to happen last year, last year. And um, so I was like, yeah, sure, I'll join. I mean, like I consider myself lower on the tier in the hierarchy because I'm research staff um, and it has a lot of faculty and like I'm in a department of family medicine. So there's a lot of physicians, a lot of residents involved, a very diverse department. So knowing all the factions of it and learning about that has been really interesting. And so I sit on a committee for that. And part of that has included attending, um, attending a meeting for an external review board um, for the department uh, because they're going to hire a new department chair. And so as an equity and diversity team, we went in to say like, this is what we want when you're reviewing the department and what we're looking for in a person. And even in that interaction, the people who are on that review board, like two white men and one white woman. And one of the guys who was an external, like external reviewer from a different university, wasn't even paying attention when a, when a faculty physician of color was talking about an experience of tokenism. He was like looking away from his screen and smiling. So he clearly wasn't paying attention to the call. And so we were like, this is unacceptable. And I, you know, started the email chain of like, we need to, we need a change in how this committee is formed. Because like, if they're already biased from the beginning, then what's the point of, you know, ensuring we have an equitable hire. And so that's been part of my work. And I also have paired up with two physician faculty members um, to help develop a racialized perspective on the current mentorship program they have within the department. So right now there's a faculty mentorship program. Um, so we're trying to figure out how we can improve EDI training and making sure that racialized residents and faculty get into that program and are mentored well and get equal opportunities because it's not enough that you get racialized people into the program, but they need to be mentored by people who are in those positions to help them get those opportunities. And usually those are white people. And so that requires EDI training on both ends. And that's something we're thinking about and then advancing it throughout the department. And so that's, you know, a lot of work on top of that. And then I won't talk too much about the mentorship group, as I mentioned, because we know we're going to have another episode. But even in my own um, mentorship group that I run with my colleague, Erin, um, colleague and friend, I would say, like, she's one of my <laughs> Just a colleague, Erin, anyway, if you're listening, I you're just a colleague. I colleague in emails, and I'm like, no, she's my best, she's one of my best friends, my friend, Erin. <laughs> and um, yeah, so in this networking group that I run with my friend, Erin, we, we started with anti-racism discussions because that's where the energy was at the time like this is timely discussions for us to have and like we're all like it's it's focused on women in research and we're all young women early investigators or in various roles 
who can make a difference. And that's what we're trying to motivate each other to do and educate each other. And we've been really lucky that we have people motivated to, to sit in the group and listen and also learn from each other and hold space for each other in a safe space. Um, Cause I consider our group very diverse. Uh, so yeah, that's been like a little bit of a, a dose here and there. And it's also encouraged people to, to have conversations with me on social media. And another reason why I think I was more motivated to do this work is because I would be sharing resources and news right when the protests were happening um, because I thought that was important to do in like my Instagram stories. And a lot of people would message me and say, thank you for sharing this. Like, this is where I get a lot of my educational resources from, from you sharing it. And I was like, okay, so there's some value in this, even if a, a lot of people might be annoyed that this is all I share because they don't care some people care. And the fact that some people care is enough to keep going. Okay. So you mentioned making all these posts, putting information out there, your source of education and information for a lot of people. Mm. So now I kind of want you transition back to your research because we actually haven't talked about that very Mm -hmm. much. So I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about your work, what you have done, what you're currently doing, where your interests lie and kind of just go from there. Sure. Um, so I have talked about um, caring about improving services and healthcare for people and improving that healthcare experience, as I said. My master's work was focused on inpatient experiences of rehabilitation after brain injury. And so that was really eye opening because nobody was really asking them those direct questions at that period of rehab because they have a lot of memory issues. But I mean, it's still worth asking those questions, even if they're not, you know, while they might not fully comprehend the purpose of a, a rule that makes them have to like you know live on this secured locked ward for two weeks where they're not allowed to leave without permission, they still have an interpretation of that experience that people aren't asking them. And so uh, I really wanted to give a voice to the voiceless with that work. And I really enjoy that like I was able to do that. And like right now I'm working on resubmitting that paper. Um, and then I kind of did more brain injury work when I was at Toronto rehab. So that was with, a, a more of a mixed method study. And that was with a group that created this, um, program for managing pain. And they do that with mindfulness and meditation and how they talk about it in group. And they've created like a textbook to go with it. And so they wanted to evaluate that program. And so that's what we ended up doing. So I helped them with that. And so that was a really great experience working directly with these occupational physical therapists. I have this urge to say OT and PT, but not everybody knows what that is. <laughs> Cause we, it's funny, like I left um, grad school, like learning all these acronyms, but also recognizing that the space wasn't for me for a long term um, because rehab science, while it, they do accept applications from any field, really, if you have a healthcare background, you, a lot of programs or a lot of like jobs afterwards aren't available to you if you're not a clinician and I was not a clinician. And so I didn't feel like it was a space for me to grow without going to get a clinical degree, which I didn't really want to do. I really wanted to figure out what I was doing before I dove back in and did a maybe regretted starting a PhD that I wasn't really happy with because part of it is I could get the PhD, but I wouldn't be able to teach because usually it's occupational physical and speech language therapist, sorry, who do that teaching. So I got the job at the cannabis startup and that was great because like I was a research analyst. So I got to not only, you know, review research, I created this giant EndNote library um, and got to categorize everything and do reviews for the work. 
part of it was also writing research proposals. And one of them was for like the NFL Players Association and stuff like that. So I got really exposed to what the business end of research looks like and what it looks like being a sponsor. And I realized that wasn't for me because, you know, I like being in the research and I don't like having to be external to it, even though I'm writing the proposal, I wouldn't get to conduct it. And so once I finished that job, I was really looking again for research assistant work. And so my current job, I get, I get to run aspects of two projects and they've kind of like expanded a bit more now that I've kind of helped out with other ones. So the main one is in cannabis and pregnancy and breastfeeding. And we're trying to understand decision-making around people who use cannabis during breastfeeding and how healthcare providers support those people or what's missing in terms of counseling and information available. And so that has allowed us to, you know, interview people, especially in the pandemic, it's been really cool to, to connect with people I've never met before and have these like in-depth conversations with them and hold space for them. Um, especially if they've had traumatic experiences with healthcare visit, healthcare workers and stuff like that, who might've judged their cannabis use. And then the other study is looking at patient partnership in the healthcare system and it's a very big systematic review and then a big pan Canadian survey. So that's a bit more different. Like I'm not doing the quantitative work on that side, but it's still really interesting to understand how we're including the patient voice in all these different areas of the healthcare system. So I still feel like I'm doing work that helps people, uh, but it's helped me um, really branch out and understand different areas that I could be applying my work and where I could apply this equity and diversity lens in future work. Uh, so health, health policy might be the next step for me or public health or something like that. Um, and I think what's really cool about me as a researcher is that I almost, I, sometimes I call myself a project fairy because I've kind of jumped around to different topic areas. I've been in psychology. I've been in rehab. Now I'm in medical education. Um, I was running focus groups to understand resident experiences the other day. So there's like a, you know, a little bit of my hands on every pot, which I really like because I get this diverse experience. I build my network. And then I have friends who are researchers who will, you know, ask me to help review a paper or ask my opinion on something. And so that's also expanded um, kind of my, my, my viewpoint and my network as well and really understanding the breadth of research that's out there. And so I, I like that it's diverse, but I'm kind of ready to, after a couple of years at this job, because my current contract's three years, um, I'll probably be ready to like dive in and just direct my own research. So I think it's helped me see that I want to be a scientist and be the one in charge after helping so many other people right now. Oh, definitely. Along that line, in all these experiences that you've had, all these different research projects that you've worked on, is there anything in particular that you think you've learned about yourself in that time? Uh, I think I've learned that, and I sort of knew this, but I think I really learned that I am an empathetic listener and like a lot of qualitative work is listening to people's stories and relating to them because we co-construct the narrative with them. And so being able to connect with people from diverse backgrounds, I think is a strength because if you want to, to do equity and diversity work and you want to mentor people, you have to be able to find a connection between you and them. And so I'm very good at finding those links and creating that respect between two people. So I think that's a strength that's really, really been harnessed and also not placing so much worthiness on aspects of being a researcher that I 
used to place on myself. So in my master's, I, you know, really thought my worth was validated through my writing. And now because I do it as a job and it's not like I'm getting paid to do this as opposed to doing a degree where I'm constantly feel like I'm being evaluated. I can treat this as a work task and it's gotten better because, you know, like it's just a thing I need to do. So it's taken a lot of weight off of things because I feel like you, as a student, you put a lot of weight on things that you think are important because they really determine if you're going to finish a degree um, compared to like a course based thing where like you do the courses and you're done. Um, because you could hang out in a master's for three years. You could hang out at a PhD for even longer if your writing's not getting there. Um, and so, sorry, what was your question? <laughs> I got question. so off path. <laughs> it's okay. It was, what do you think you've learned about yourself? Yeah, I think I've learned how to prioritize, you know, what's important, um, for sure. And to not put so much weight on certain things when I can ask for help, like, asking for help, I think has been the biggest lesson. Cause I never was that person in undergrad. Like I wouldn't want to go to like, um, extra tutorials or anything. I'm like, I can figure this out on my own. And now I love collaboration. I love reaching out to the team I'm on and saying like, what do you think about this? Or I think you have more strength to do this. So maybe I, you could do this task. Um, cause recently we had to do a diagram for a paper I'm writing and I asked one of the undergrads, can you look, read this section and come up with a diagram? Because I'm too close to it to come up with anything useful. And she created this beautiful um, pictogram of it that I would never come up with. And so it's like really understanding people's strengths, I think, has also been part of my evolution as a researcher as well. Okay, so you've learned all these lessons. You've gone to different programs, different degrees, different job positions, different countries, different <laughs> continents. Um, is there anything else important that you wanted to mention or talk about in relation to you or your experiences or any thoughts and feelings that you may have? I think it's important to know that your identity is evolving as you grow. And so when I was younger, I really thought I was on this distinct path. And now I know that life meanders and so I recognize myself as having multiple identities in terms of like I am a researcher I'm a woman I'm a woman of color but I also dance and I cook and I bake and I paint and I mentor but I'm also a mentee and so I think having this like fully fleshed out life where I'm doing things that I enjoy really takes the weight off of you know only identifying as a grad student or only identifying as a researcher because I know that I'm talented in multiple ways and like I have passions in multiple things and it is a de-stressor for me and like I am also a therapy patient and like I attend therapy every week and I think it's so important for everybody um, to do that and so I think all those things make up who I am and not letting my grad school experience define me has been really important for me. This has been Humans of Grad School. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Humans of GS or Instagram at Humans of GS Podcast. If you want to get in touch, 
email humansofgradschoolpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.